Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. So guys, I am hoping that you are joining us, chomping at the bit, wanting more carnivore insight and information, and that you have already listened to episode 77, which was part one of this fantastic discussion with Dr. Paul Saladino on the carnivore diet and how he believes and argues it is the best way of eating for human optimal performance and wellness. If you haven't, Hey, look, you've got to get back into episode 77, listen through all of that, then rejoin us for what is now a discussion on the practical elements of the carnivore diet and whether we can shift away from a strict position and actually just go more meat dominance and introduce maybe some plant-based nutrition. So what kind of things can you expect us to explore? Well, I'm going to poke and prod Paul a little bit. Um, not antagonizing him, but challenging his rigid position on meat only to see if we can get a bit in without compromising our health in any way. So I'm going to be asking him things such as cooking and does that help alleviate some of his concerns around plants. I ask whether wine, chocolate and coffee could be included in a carnivore diet. I explore if there's any plant no-goes, like some absolute worst offending plant categories that we should avoid. But on the flip side, are there any safe, benign vegetables where we can bring them in with very little negative impact? Good news is there are some in Paul's opinion. I ask about texture and how we can introduce a little bit of crunch into what is otherwise quite a chewy plate of food. I ask if we can alleviate or address any sweet needs that we have throughout a carnivore diet. And then I poke and prod around dairy and eggs. Some people include dairy and eggs in their carnivore diets. Some don't. I wanted to understand Paul's position on those two. So off the back of this discussion, and as we wrap up our two-hour dialogue with Paul Saladino, you should get a sense of why the carnivore diet might be something worth considering, as well as how you might ease your way in to the carnivore diet or what you will do after you intervene with a strict carnivore diet as a ongoing lifestyle. Because Paul confesses that quality of life is important. He wants people to feel great and thrive, but he also respects that people got to enjoy their life. And is there some balance where a few additions to meat don't take anything away, but maybe bring a smile on your face? I think this conversation is going to continue to delight you Again, if you've got any questions or queries, thoughts, hey, if it's if it's triggered you at all, I want to know that too. So get hold of me and the team on the Adaptation Facebook page or the Adaptation Instagram feed. Enjoy, guys. Adaptation. Before we just kind of move into the, the questions I've got, which are a collection of my own curiosity plus my wife, who is going through the carnivore diet at the moment, I just wanted to hit on the the mass appeal or the mass applicability discussion of the carnivore diet because i would i would position uh maybe wrongly that there is definitely a sustainable argument 
around how the world couldn't pivot to being all carnivals tomorrow. I'm not suggesting you think that's possible, probable, or, uh, or, the, or that you're saying that should happen. But nonetheless, we do have a sustainability issue with, its, with the current setup of our agriculture across both plant-based and animal-based. And then a second thing, which I, I don't think is spoken about enough, is meat through time has been correlated with affluency. You'll see, uh, you know, royals, um, you'll see people with money typically have banquets with lots of meat. And you'll see the peasants, um, you know, foraging off of, you know, just a bit of bread and a few other bits and pieces. Like you see that divergence from an affluent perspective. And if we fast forward to today, I think it's still evident. Whilst everyone gets more meat than they did, you know, a few hundred years ago, um, in terms of how we've how we've evolved through the recent societies, it is still costly to buy meat and it's cost prohibitive to buy good quality meat. Um, I know you talk about salmon roe. I just bought some salmon roe a couple of days ago. Uh, in English money, it was five pounds for 50 grams. It's basically a tablespoon. <laughs> five pounds, which is almost like eight, nine bucks for a, for a tablespoon. It was ridiculous so cost prohibitive i think about a good quality organic piece of you know steak it's expensive when you compare it to the other aisles in the supermarket so i'm not challenging you because i want to i'm just thinking about you know the reality of us saying hey for optimal health optimal wellness optimal performance to align with your evolutionary needs go meet go full on meat I don't think everyone can adopt that one because of the sustainability piece and two because of the the cost prohibitive uh, nature of our meat um, industry right now. Do you want to say anything to that? Do you think I've got things completely wrong or is there a nuance there? Um, so I think that there are, that's, that's a lot. That's fraught, man. That, that's a lot there. Let me, let me try and break down some of that. So I think that the first thing you mentioned, the sustainability arguments are quite enlightening for me. I have learned so much about this, you know? So there, I think that there is a strong argument that perhaps the only way that we are going to control greenhouse gases is by putting more ruminants on the planet that are properly raised. Uh, this is a crazy thing, but you know, you look at the work of Alan Savory, and the idea is that when ruminants are properly grazing on land, they increase the carbon carrying capacity of the soil. So they're, they're a net negative in terms of greenhouse gases. So the idea that a carnivore diet is not sustainable is, is again, a little bit of a misconstrual, if that's a word, or a, uh, a misconstruction, a misunderstanding of the way that the greenhouse gases are made. A, counter, thing a counter to that, though, would be, yeah, ruminants do help. So let's not eat them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, unless they're the optimal food for humans, and if we want to have healthy brains and babies who are going to be able to be productive members of society and continue to develop technologies, you know, then we probably want to be healthy. You know, we, we should probably eat them. You know, I don't think that the issue is that we shouldn't eat them. It's that we should put more of them on the planet, and then we can feed people and make them healthier. And then the other issue is, you know, I mean, the healthcare industry is a trillion-dollar industry. I think that people are not thinking about this. So are we talking sustainability? If we're talking fiscal sustainability, like 
like talk talk about uh, how much money we could save in the healthcare industry if what I'm proposing is true, and if if we can reverse diabetes or we can reverse much autoimmunity. I mean, in, from a fiscal perspective, in terms of GDP or the way that we spend our money as a country or any country, this sort of a thing could really disrupt the healthcare industry too, and save governments or people many dollars in terms of health at a basic level. Um, otherwise, you know, I think we should put more ruminants on the planet to feed people. And then, you know, we make larger herds, the soil carrying capacity is increased. And that's a great thing. There were millions of buffalo, you know, in the US before we hunted them to near extinction. They're clearly not the cause of increasing greenhouse gases. If you look at the way greenhouse gases are distributed, it's clearly mostly industry. You know, agriculture is 9 to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions and of that the majority is actually plant agriculture. So, if you look at the greenhouse gas emissions on the on the planet, 50% are normal. There are huge bogs in Africa that are producing methane that is equal to the amount of methane and other greenhouse gases that we are producing as a peoples. The United States produces 15% of the greenhouse gases in the world. And so if we were to stop everything in the US, it would only be a fraction, right? And then of the 50% of greenhouse gases that are produced by humans across the world, 70, 80% or more is technology, transportation, things like this. Okay. So where's the problem here? And then ag agriculture is 10% of that 6% is plant agriculture and 4% is animal agriculture. If we were to completely eliminate ag animal agriculture, we would both have a major issue in terms of soil fertility, water table management. We need animals in terms of ecosystems. And that would make it, it would, if it's theoretically, if we wipe that out, it would, it wouldn't even make a dent in the face of, you know, in the, in the way that greenhouse gas emissions are trending in this country or in the world. And then if you look at the way that, that, that ruminants can increase the soil carrying capacity, and it kind of makes sense from like an ecological perspective. I mean, animals and plants have coexisted for the majority of the earth, you know, the earth's history. So if we put more, we can increase the soil carrying capacity. So the sustainability arguments, I welcome those. I say, oh yeah, great. You know, let's talk about sustainability. And, and then we see that, wow, animals are probably the answer here. Well, and then I, in terms I, also, of I also think it's deforestation. I think not enough people, uh, no, that's a lie. Lots of people talk about deforestation and, you know, replacing forests with, you know, um, palm trees or palm, um, you know, palm oil trees. Um, and that's that's a massive deal, you know. Lots of the, you know, lots of the benefit of rainforests are being removed dr dramatically. You combine that with the fact that you know our our, our plant-based agriculture is is not fantastic. Um, it's both producing greenhouse gases and it's taking nutrients from from the soil. And you think actually there's there's there is there's a problem that extends beyond the animals. And part of that problem is from a fiscal perspective and a, a kind of environmental perspective is just a huge tr capitalist choice we have you go through to the supermarket and you'll find you know hundreds of thousands of different products available to purchase huge huge choice with your kind of um suggested diet their supermarkets would look radically different and think about the cost saving if there were much less food being produced that you think is ancillary or, or perhaps even survival food. What about if we just worked on the stuff that we need? I think there's an argument there too. Yeah, it's it would change the way things look. It would basically be, I mean, I think that never will everyone be carnivore. No. I mean, I, f I forget the statistics. 15% 15, 15 of people are 
like, um, you know, vegetarian right now, or maybe even less. So maybe it's only 3%. I, I could look up the statistics, but I think that the percentage of the population that's actually vegetarian is quite low, you know, and maybe we would get to that point eventually. Five, seven percent of people in the world are carnivores. We're never going to have 100% of people in the world are carnivores. You know, McDonald's hamburger buns are just too tasty. You know, Cheetos are just too tasty. Like we've made so many junk foods, it's so impossible. But, you know, the, um, the issue is just that um, uh, I think it's going to change the face of the way we look at food in general, you know, no matter what we do. So, And um, what about this affordability perspective? Because do you, do you think that's a valid argument? Now, if you, if you didn't buy anything else, you went strict carnivore, you didn't buy any other product. I mean, there is a cost saving in the other, other products you would have otherwise bought. Um, but one would argue that, you know, to go to lean in on a carnivore diet, it's going to feel expensive and probably going to be quite expensive. You know, I see Sean Baker with his, you know, Tomahawk um, steaks and, you know, you, you know, you, you knock him back the salmon roe like as if it's, you know, jelly beans. And, um, you know, you, you I, I guess organ meat's quite cheap, but, you know, red muscle meat's not particularly cheap, at least over here in the UK. Um, do you think it's currently accessible to I anyone? I do. Um, I think that what I recommend to people is that they eat the best quality meat that they can. But, you know, I've been asked this on numerous podcasts in the past and people say they want to try and paint me into a corner and they say, well, what if you could only eat plants or conventionally raised animal meats? What's the best thing for people to do? And I said, you know, I actually think that now I, I actually think that you animal foods are the best thing, whether they're conventionally raised or organic. So if somebody could only afford conventionally raised animal foods, I feel like that would be uh, still the best way to do it. And as you know, liver and organ meats are quite cheap. The other thing is that fat from animals is quite cheap and often free. A lot of butchers will give people things like suet or trimmings. Um, so the you can get you know a significant portion of your diet from a nose to tail perspective pretty darn cheap, you know, bones are not terribly expensive. Um, there are all sorts of, um, pieces of the animal that people can get that are not expensive. And then, you know, muscle meat can be expensive, but, um, I would say that if people can't afford organic or grass fed that, that they can do conventional and they're still going to get a lot of good nutrition. And I think that's a net benefit from, uh, all the, all the perspectives we've talked about, but, but I do respect that it's more expensive. And I think that that it kind of speaks to this idea that like there are deeper forces at play here that, you know, why are crops that are not good for humans, the ones that are subsidized, you know, like I think with the amount of money that governments could save on healthcare, they should think about subsidizing food that's actually good for humans. But I do respect that animal foods are more expensive. I think that the other piece I would add to that is, you know, I think that it's been shown that you can do a carnivore diet in a fairly affordable way. I mean, if people were absolutely at their wits end, you know, and they, and they just did not have much money at all, you know, you could begin to approach this by just doing basic ground beef and liver and, and some organ meats. And that really wouldn't be that expensive. You know, when I think about it, you know, you can get over here, at least you can get a, you can get ground beef for $2 a pound. And I think, well, that's not that much. I mean, a pound of ground beef is so many nutrients, you know, how much are going to people going to eat? two, two pounds a day of ground beef plus liver. I mean, I think you could probably eat a carnivore diet for $6 a day. American That's a fair dollars. point. Ground, ground beef is a lot cheaper over here as well. It's when you get, you know, the nice cuts of fillet steak where things start to get a little bit 
hairy, especially if you think you're going to have that, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner, and there's across a family and it's across the week. Um, yeah, that's when I think people's eyes start to water on the cost. But I think you make a valid point. Yeah. That, and I mean, I, I think you could probably do it for $6 a day, you know, American dollars. And then it's like, okay, so, you know, if people are living on less than $6 a day for food, then they're, they're in pretty dire straits. And, and I respect that, that that's going to be pretty hard. And at that point, they're pretty much in survival mode. But I mean, $6 a day, most people spend that on coffee, you know, <laughs> like, or, or I mean, most people spend that in gasoline, or I'm trying to think what people spend $6 a day, like uh, a dessert at a restaurant. I mean, people look at their freezers. And I mean, if there are, you know, $6 a day, I mean, you could probably find that if you just looked at, you know, your ice cream funds for, you know, a week or two, it, it wouldn't be that hard. So there are ways to do it, you know, and, and it starts to speak to these ideas of like where we allocate our money and what do we prioritize. And I've often thought, you know, if I could not afford good food, then I would have to trim something. You know, I probably would not have a car and I would just use public transport or a bicycle, you know, and that's just my personal choice. But I've, for me, I prioritize food. Yeah, so, same here, same here. I think that's a really good counter to uh, the two objections I've passed your way. So let's move into, and and I think uh, in the spirit of giving people what they need and quickly, let's try and move move through the these 10 food products which are not on the carnivore diet. Uh, relative quickly, I want to kind of yes, no, uh, give me a sense of whether they could be introduced or not. The idea behind this, Paul, is... I, I would like to support the carnivore movement, but I, I respect that it sounds very extreme. Um, it sounds lacking variety, lacking texture, um, and it just flies in the face of what people are used to. And I'm trying to understand if there's a transitional diet, uh, whether it be post-carnivore or pre-carnivore, or, or generally a meat-dominant diet that does include some foods which aren't necessarily net negative. So with that in mind, whether it be collateral damage, whether it causes deficiencies in its own right, or your argument is it breaks ketosis, therefore I shouldn't have it. I want to understand which of these we can add in with a mild sacrifice knowing that we're doing ourselves limited harm. Here are, here are, here are the um, 10. Well, the first one isn't food, uh, food per se, it's the idea of cooking. So uh, much of your argument is I think um, if you take the raw ingredient, right? You know, people like knocking back raw kale and like doing green smoothies and having broccoli uh, sprouts and you know all this kind of raw veg. And I, I, I think there's a strong argument to say almost all veg should be cooked, mostly. Um, if it's cooked, maybe it's pressure cooked, or maybe there's a fermentation process. Are we not breaking down the lectins and other like bad stuff that you talk about and making them both digestible, palatable, and perhaps even neutral? In some cases, yes, but unfortunately not entirely. You bring up this incredibly good point, though, that throughout human history, one of the other things that I think is interesting and in an argument for an animal-based diet is that if we look at our ancestors and even contemporary indigenous peoples, they have gone to great lengths to detoxify foods. And I would argue that most fermentation is done to detoxify foods. Now, it depends what method we're using. Some things like oxalates will resist everything we can do, whether it's pressure cooking, whether it's um, whether it's fermentation, like you are not going to get rid of those. And some lectins are fairly robust as well and will not be denatured. Some things like phytic acid, which is a large molecule that plants use to chelate minerals, 
can be denatured through fermentation, but not by cooking. You know, soy is very high in phytic acid, and the only way to get rid of the phytic acid in soy is um, is by fermentation because the bacteria will produce phytase. But I think that what we see is generally a reduction in these compounds, but not a complete elimination um, in many cases. And so you could approach net neutrality in some cases, but then you start to think like, why am I eating this? And if you're eating it for just variety and, you know, social things. Yeah. I mean, you, but you really have to cook the vegetables quite a bit, you know, like you really need to cook the heck out of them and make them basically into a mush. And at that point you're getting macronutrients without, uh, you're, you're denaturing many of the things that people would say would be valuable, but I would say you're probably getting rid of most of the toxins, but the vegetables are now mush for the most part, but some of them do survive. And I don't think anybody's fully quantified that, but yes, traditionally speaking, fermentation of brassica vegetables will reduce some of the isothiocyanates, but <clears throat> things like oxalates, these are not denatured with any type of cooking. So some of them do persist. And I think that there's probably some data with regard to lectins as well, that you're probably not going to get rid of all of them. Um, but that's a good point that, that you, you're, you're going to, it's maybe going to be a little better, but at that point you're just making mush out of every Everything you eat, and we kind of go back to like, why would you just eat mush vegetables? <laughs> you know, I get like if you just want to have mush vegetable soup to have a little bit different flavor, okay, maybe, but and and people have to kind of think about their issues. And we get back to like an individual basis and the immunologic issues. Like if people have autoimmune disease, you know, like I, I would not use any plants, even if they're cooked to mush. I think you got to remove them and see how your body and your immune system responds. So it it can it can affect it in some ways, but man, like some things you're just not going to denature. I mean, clearly we know baking bread, sourdough. There's still plenty of antigens in there. Some things like nuts and seeds, you're just not going to be able to denature them. Those are the plant's protective parts. Like you're you're not going to be able to make them completely completely palatable or completely usable. You can make them into survival food, um, but in terms of long-term micronutrient density, very poor. Okay, uh, I think that's that's a good answer on that one, Paul. What about uh, this? Is a very sensitive subject to me, and <laughs> I think many listening. Wine, chocolate coffee. So I don't think we anyone looks at wine, chocolate or coffee and thinks, I'm a, you know, these are plant based foods, of course, they are. And people do know when they think it through. But for the most part, you don't think you're having vegetables when you're having some chocolate, you don't think you're having vegetables when you sip on your latte. So can you get on board with these? Uh, are there any caveats to, to include them in a carnivore diet without the downside? You, you, you can't see video right now, but I'm just kind of I'm, I'm the guy who says, I'm shaking, I'm shaking my head, <laughs> you know, like Santa Claus is not real. Uh, I'm just, I'm just the bearer of bad news. You know, those are three of the most highly triggering foods for people, unfortunately, and they form many of the fabric of what we do as humans socially. Wine is some of the highest pesticides. It may be different in Europe, but wine is highly uh, full of mold toxins and pesticides and sulfites. So I think wine is potentially one of the biggest triggers for people. We can we sort of actually talked about resveratrol. I would argue that the tannins in wine are probably not beneficial for humans. They can actually cause gut disruption and gut issues. So I think wine is clearly a net negative. Now, everyone has to ex, uh, sort of evaluate it on an individual level and say, how sick am I? You know, but if people are really sick, Wine is clearly net negative. It's, it's, it's alcohol, which is a toxin for your body. 
Um, it's, it's pesticides in the wine. Maybe it's biodynamic. Maybe it's organic. Okay. It's often the grapes get moldy. There are sulfites. It's pretty hard to find a pure, clean wine, which is why so many people react to wines, get headaches. They don't feel good. If you can drink it and you feel okay and you don't have autoimmune disease, you don't have a chronic, you know, mental illness or a chronic, you know, inflammatory condition, maybe, but man, that's a tough one. Chocolate and coffee, let's think about what they are. They're plant seeds, you know, that have been roasted. And in the case of coffee, the roasting process produces many, many toxic things. There's acrylamide. Coffee is very contaminated with mold, um, pesticides. Sure, you can get the best coffee you can find, but I guarantee you it's still going to have acrylamide, which is a known toxin. And, you know, some coffees say, oh, we don't have any pesticides. We're tested for pesticides. We're tested for mold toxins. We don't have any of those. Well, just intrinsic in the coffee is caffeine, which is not a positive thing for anyone's metabolism. And then there are other polyphenols in coffee, which have been shown to be clastogenic or create DNA breaks in cell culture. So, uh, caffeic acid and chlorogenic acid, I have concerns that the actual polyphenols in coffee are not beneficial for humans and are a net negative long-term. So it's like, why would we expect this to be good for us? This is a plant seed. The seeds are the most highly defended part of the plant in terms of lectins, in terms of anti-nutrients, and we're roasting a plant seed. Think about how many times we cook and roast plant seeds. That's a really bad idea, you know? Like that's those are very highly toxic, very highly defended parts of plants that that cause issues for us. So I'm really not a fan of coffee. And I know everyone just turned off the podcast right now. And they're like, screw, the, <laughs> screw this guy. Like, I'm sorry I just blew your podcast. But people blame me. Don't don't blame Steve. Blame me. I'm <laughs> I'm the scapegoat. Like, I'm just not a fan of coffee. I think when people eliminate coffee, in my personal experience and based on what I've seen in terms of the literature, they are much better. That is a that is a positive thing. Coffee is a net negative for people. And but then the third what, one is would, chocolate. Would we not say that coffee and chocolate, the roasting process, the drying process, like everything that goes in in taking it from nature and edible, right? We we we've obviously evolved and understood. Uh, sorry, we've we've learned through working with these uh, these foodstuffs that we have to do a lot to them to make them edible and satisfying. And but you don't think we're doing enough to use the word denature to take take the things out that would would cause that collateral damage. I don't not in, not in chocolate either. Chocolate is very high in oxalates. Um, yeah, it's basically a source of oxalates for people. Chocolate is. Uh, yeah, I know. And I mean, you 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 can just you can see how your body tolerates it. But I've seen it trigger eczema in me and in my clients and. It's a source of oxalates, which are a big problem now, among other things. And people will say, oh, but the polyphenols. And I hope that they pause halfway through that sentence and they say, oh, he already talked about that. Let's, let's dig into the research on chocolate polyphenols. Like, I'm pretty sure they're not beneficial for humans. And again, I'm a disruptor, you know, like my opinion is unique, but I'm, I think there's some pretty good evidence that we've been told, we've sort of been, we're thinking about this incorrectly, you know. But the poison is in the dose, surely, right? Like of you course. know, if you if you had a, yes. a, a couple of cubes, right? I, I'm trying I'm trying to put chocolate back on the list. So <laughs> excuse me for having a bit of a kind of counter on this, but you know, if you had one cup of coffee, if you had a couple of cubes of you know fine eighty five percent dark chocolate, um, and you seem relatively healthy, 
you don't you're not aware of it uh, you know chronic issues you may have them of course because they take time to manifest and show and present symptoms but for the most part you think you're, you're fine having a couple of cubes of chocolate if you can restrain to just that amount um let's put this in context of 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 what kind of damage that could cause I think that you bring up a great point. It is very contextual. It's very individual. And I think that I differentiate. You know, there are people that I work with that are really sick, really sick, really bad autoimmune disease, really sick. And those people, I say, no, don't have any, right? If you're not really sick, if you're already doing pretty well in your life and you seem to tolerate it, sure, include it. You know, live your life, enjoy it. Just know that what I would suggest is that it's probably not doing you any favors. Don't eat it imagining that it's good for you. That's a health there's benefit. No, yeah, there's no health benefit to chocolate, right? right? I, I, and that, that, again, is completely that's completely a radical statement, but I would say there's plenty of evidence to support that. There's no health benefit to coffee. There's no health benefit to chocolate. I think that wine is net negative. So like, if people want to do those in their life, yes, live your life, enjoy your life, but just know hey, there's no benefit here. But I mean, we all do things in our lives that are, that, are, that are not great for us that increase our quality of life. And I think that that's important. That ultimately, I want people to have the quietest quality of life, which is why I share these informational pieces with them. And for people that are, that are okay with their quality of life, you know, eat, eat the food that you want to eat. But if people are really suffering, I think that the really cool piece is, hey, these are some things that you might not have thought of that could be contributing to your suffering. I think that's really the magic of the carnivore diet is for people who have not found benefit in any other way. You know, they're saying, oh my gosh, when I remove all the plants, I feel so much better. This is incredible. I have my life back. That's who I want to reach. And sure, there are people who really want to optimize and don't miss the chocolate. And they're like, hey, you know, I feel better without the chocolate. My quality of life is higher without chocolate than having chocolate in. But for you, if your quality of life is higher with wine and chocolate and coffee, do those things, do those things. Ultimately, I just want people to have the tools to create the highest quality of life. Yeah, I, th I think the point you made there was quite elegant, right? You, your your opinion and you know, the, the literature suggests that there is no net benefit to consuming these foods, albeit we've been told that plenty. Um, and you're, you're bursting that bubble and saying you don't think there is. So uh, there might be a little bit of damage but depending on your tolerance you might be okay i think that's a different message than um than we're led to believe like we eat these foods in part because we're told they're good for us um is there just kind of skip moving from that what about no-goes right so you've spoken a lot about bras brassica vegetables uh, you've spoken about sulforaphane um would that be like your first first place of an elimination so if someone doesn't go straight on carnivore out the gate what would you say your kind of top offending vegetable is or, or class of vegetables i think you start with nuts and seeds i think you start with the, the the most offended parts of the plant nuts and seeds and um that's really going to burst a lot of bubbles because people really like nuts um and i think that included in that i mean nuts seeds grains and legumes are all nuts and seeds okay so i would okay. you know seeds seeds is the word and seeds are all of those things so if you eliminate seeds from your diet i think people are going to have a benefit great great well, well said actually i love that i think that's an easy way to think about it what um what about texture so my wife is saying she's a week and a half into this diet you know she's eating mostly um, beef she is having eggs and she's having a bit of dairy because uh, she, she loves it um having a bit of chicken a little bit of salmon she's had a bit of salmon roe but she's getting bored if i'm honest you know it's she's a healthy eater but she has been quite a carb dominant eater 
um, clean eating for, for the last year and a half. So she's not going through a huge transition um, and eliminating junk food, but she is eliminating food she likes. And she's struggling with the sameness from meal to meal. She She's mostly struggling with texture. She doesn't feel that she's getting crunch and variety uh, of textures in her food. Everything feels, you know, very samey. Do you have any ideas on how to bring crunch into a carnival diet other than like crunching on bones? Um, jerkies sometimes are good for that, you know, and you can make the jerky very dry. Um, I, I have a lot of jerkies that I've made that have a lot of crunch. I've made liver jerky, which has some crunchiness to it and can kind of give people that, that texture if they want it. Um, but that's, that's probably the best recommendation or it's probably, you know, the, the first recommendation I'd have is making a jerky and slicing the meat very thin and then making it into like, uh, something that is, that is breakable, you know, like a crust. Um, I think there are probably going to be more and more products in this space, um, in the future that have that sort of crunchy flaky texture. And, uh, maybe I'll be a part of bringing those to market, but I, I think that it's for right now, it's, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of that, that like, I think the jerky is the way to do it, to slice the meat very thin. You can almost make like, make like a meat cracker, you know, out of the jerky or the liver. And it, it turns into like this, you can make like a salty cracker if people want the crunch. But I think, yeah, that's the one thing that people miss is the crunchiness. The other thing you can do to get crunch is to kind of like to, you know, I mean, I don't think people see this every day, but I think it's fine. You can make some like crispy bacon or, um, or just take a fattier part of an animal and kind of like, you can fry that up a little bit. Oh, One of the things scratchings, I, for example, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or meat. I, you can get them from beef too. You know, you can get these kind of, you know, pieces of the meat fat that you can cook up. Yeah. Yeah. And that can get kind of a crunchy, like flaky texture. That's a little different than like a steak. And then you can also create a crust on your steak. You know, people can dry age their steak or they can cook the steak in a way that creates that kind of crust on the steak. Um, and, or you can sometimes, people will sometimes make, uh, crunchy things out of like fish skin or something. You know, mm -hmm. if you cook a piece of salmon in the pan, you can get that skin kind of flaky or crispy. But yeah, I think that, um, the, the texture and the variety thing is, is definitely a stumbling block for some people, but, and, and kind of like we were just saying, you know, if, if your wife is otherwise pretty healthy, I have no problem with her incorporating some of these other things back into her diet. I would just keep an eye on how we feel and whether it's whether it's you know your your best quality of life or not. But I think there are ways to do it, and a lot of it is just kind of the cooking methods that you use or the you know the the, the dehydration to make like meat crackers and stuff. And yeah, and then and then I think people eventually let go of that crunchiness. I don't really. I mean, I'm probably an alien myself, which <laughs> makes me you know it makes it easy for me to do this diet, but I don't really notice it. You know, so. Yeah, it's definitely something that's missing for her, and she's she's not happy. I mean, she's she doesn't feel bad. She's not she's not not brimming full of satisfaction. I think it's it's transitional. I, I, I well, she understands it's transitional. It's been eye opening for her because she's realised she can have more meat and enjoy having more meat and get the benefits of that. Um, but she she's not having a profound difference in how she feels in part because I think she's relatively healthy and leading a clean diet. So we've already been starting to think about like how can we introduce foods in? We don't really care about ketosis or, or permanent ketosis states. I think she'd be comfortable understanding that sometimes she's going to be leveraging a bit of fat versus being, you know, carb driven. Um, but we're, we're not, she wouldn't be going in it for pure play. I want to be keto. So with that in mind, 
could she introduce some white rice or potatoes or um, cucumbers, carrots, mushrooms? I mean, not all of those are particularly carby, but those foods in my mind, they, they sound benign, especially if you say like get the cucumber and take the seeds and the, the rind off carrots i guess they're fairly benign mushrooms i think there seems to be a lot of health benefits purported with mushrooms and fungi you know i look at white rice and potatoes and i don't hear tons of uh issues against them i know potatoes are white uh, nightshades and rice probably has a little bit of lectins but out, out of the full gamut of vegetables you know some you know big big offenders these don't strike me as the ones that would be. And carrots and cucumber, for example, could bring you that crunch whilst mostly giving you water. So what do you think about those foods? White rice, potatoes, cucumber, carrots, mushrooms. Could they be included if you're otherwise healthy? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And if it helps people create a diet around that, you know, I think they absolutely could be included. The only thing I'll say about mushrooms is that white button mushrooms uh, uh, the cremini, the portobello, the white button mushrooms do have a compound called agarotene, which is toxic uh, when they're raw. So those mushrooms should never be eaten raw, and yep. you just want to make sure you cook them a lot. Um, I'm not familiar. People always ask me the question about mushrooms. Mushrooms are a completely different kingdom than plants, and they seem to have evolved different defense mechanisms against animals. Uh, animals, I think it would be interesting for me to learn about this, but I, my impression is that herbivores don't eat mushrooms in quite the same way that they eat plants. It may be because when they're raw, it's very difficult to digest the mushroom and you don't get a whole lot of nutrients because of the chitinous cell wall. But, um, and in that case, the mushrooms kind of have a built-in defense mechanism and they don't need to have as many toxins. I mean, clearly there are some mushrooms that are totally poisonous, you know? <laughs> um, but they're, they're, I mean, the mushroom kingdom may be interesting and I, I actually love the where this discussion is going. You know, are there more and less toxic plant foods? I think, yeah. Yeah, there probably are, and people could introduce some of the less toxic ones, but especially always... if it's processed, right? Right. So you talk about mushrooms. Yeah. I know some people love raw mushrooms. My my sister, for example, yeah. yams them down, and she she has red pepper raw. She loves it. I, I don't know where she gets it from because no one else in the family loves to eat that way. Um, but you know, we would always really cook a red pepper. We would always really cook a you know cook mushrooms, and I, I I can't help but feel like if you know you probably render down these foods that. Um, they're probably not particularly negative, but I'm not coming from a scientific perspective. That's purely instinctive and with a bit of intuition. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because if you could say steak and mushrooms, like we know they go fantastically well together. If you could say they're on the cards, you've just changed people's lives. If you could say, hey, have some cucumber, just take the seeds out. Wow, now we've got we've got that little bit of veg that everyone's craving for, that little bit of kind of watery substance that just brings a little bit of variety and color to the plate. If carrots aren't particularly damaging, especially if cooked, hey, that brings a whole new side to this discussion. As long as people are accepting if they have white rice and potatoes, they're not going to get the keto benefits and the metabolic benefits that come with that. Hey, maybe that's a compromise people are willing to make for the otherwise profound benefits of a meat dominant diet. Yeah, I think so. And ultimately, like I said, it's just about quality of life. And for some people that are really sick, I think that they could get triggered by those foods. But um, some people who are not uh, may be able to eat those foods and do just fine, and it will increase their quality of life more. Yeah. As you mentioned, white rice does have lectins, which can trigger some people. Uh, white rice can certainly create diabetic conditions or insulin resistance True. in some people. I think one of the interesting parts of the discussion is people may not know 
how good they could feel until they eliminate all the plant foods. And so I think there's this idea like, hey, maybe what we should call this is like the carnivore cleanse, you know? And I, I think for some people like myself, eating entirely animal-based long-term is viable and the best option. But for other people, maybe just doing a cleanse, quote unquote, um, will, and they get to see like, hey, I feel so much better without these plants. And then they start to add things back in and say, I'm going to get a little cucumber. I'm going to get a little carrot. And oh, that actually didn't agree with me that much. But it's not until you really let the background noise fade away that you can see the signal of the foods you're eating. And I think, you know, like your wife is doing, it's great. She's on a full carnivore diet now. As she starts to add foods back in, she can see if maybe they were triggering or if they're not and they add value to her life. I think that's great. And we can kind of think about which foods are more or less toxic or more or less dangerous long-term. The red and red bell peppers, the, the nightshades, I am a little bit skeptical yeah. of. I mean, the potatoes, I think those can definitely trigger people to have issues and I would want them or at least recommend that they eliminate them completely for some amount of time, uh, probably at least 30 days. Uh, mostly what I've seen is that people have improvement in joint pain when they eliminate the nightshades, whether it's tomato or eggplant or, you know, potatoes or the red and green bell peppers, whatever. So, but if people can tolerate them, who am I to say no? Um, I think they just need to, the other piece of the equation is, hey, the majority of your nutrition is coming from animals. You know, the really, really nutrient-dense foods are animals. So the, the part where it could go off the rails a little bit is if you, um, if you eliminate or you exclude animal foods in favor of plant foods, you're probably decreasing your nutrients long-term. So there's benefit in increasing your animal foods, number one. And then for people that may be sensitive to it, I think there's benefit in eliminating the plant foods. But those are two, two pieces of the equation which are yeah. kind of independent. What about if someone has sweet a sweet fix? They just want just want a little bit of sweet. Like you know, do you ever <laughs> do you ever get that need of oh, I just need chocolate or a, I need some sugar in 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 some hot drink? I know you never get that. Uh, is that is that purely a transitional craving? Um, or said another way, would you support someone having fulfilling a sweet fix every once in a while? And if so, what would you say would be an appropriate Thing with sweetness, such as berries. I, I, I don't know. I generally see it, as you say, as uh, sort of a, a an indicator that there's something that's off. I don't, I don't get it. I think a lot of people see it go away. It's kind of a transitional thing for most people. If they're coming off a high carbohydrate diet, of course, they're going to have cravings and that's okay. That's part of it. Um, I think they should push through it. Now, the other thing is I think sometimes when we have micronutrient deficiencies, we get that kind of sweet craving. And where are the micronutrients? Well, they're in animal foods, you know? Like, so I think that it can go away long-term, but there, there can be some difficult transitional things in there for sure. Um, and I try to support people. To me, it's an indication that there's a micronutrient issue that I need to address, that the people really need to look into. And I, if they really need a sweet thing, then yeah, berries, Blackberries have a lot of oxalate. It's probably in the seeds. So I think we have to know, are we dealing with oxalate sensitivity? What are we doing here? Honey, honey is pretty benign from what I can tell. Although I'll, if you eat a lot of honey, you're going to destroy your, your, your mouth. You're going to hurt your dentition. That's very clear. Even in indigenous hunter-gatherers that, that have honey like the Hadza, their, their dental health goes to, goes, to, goes to pot when they eat a lot of honey. So not so a good thing honey, long-term. Honey could be in, in moderation. Perhaps, yeah. Again, you're going to lose metabolic benefits of ketosis, yeah. but yeah, honey, honey could be in moderation, yes. But people will notice their dental health will change and will suffer. But 
I, I, like I said, I think that the sweet cravings are a transitional thing that people should be aware of and usually indicative of an underlying micronutrient deficiency or a transitional metabolic adjustment. Cool. All right. Almost done with these questions. I, I know we're running long, but this is so, so beneficial for everyone. So thanks for hanging in there, Paul. Um, quickly on herbs and spices, would you say they're... they're What's your position on herbs and spices generally? I've heard you talk about a couple today. I've heard you speak about pepper previously. But are there any, quote unquote, benign herbs and spices? Think about the dose again. We're, we're putting typically very small pieces of uh, you know plant fragments over our food just to bring a little flavor. Is that an issue we should be thinking about? Again, I think it goes back to the individual. Some people really react to them, especially the seed-based spices. Again, we're talking seeds, cumin, uh, you know, pepper. These are seeds, right? We're, we're grinding up seeds. I think those are the spices that people are likely to be most sensitive to. Um, and, and I think that I definitely have some clients and I've seen people in the carnivore community who they do oregano and they don't feel good. And so it's dependent on the person. If you're using a leaf based spice and you seem to tolerate it just fine. Yeah, no problem with that. But again, you know, um, probably no issue there. I don't think it's a benefit. Um, but the seed based spices are probably the biggest triggers for people. And I think that again, it goes back to the idea that for a lot of people, the, the beautiful thing about eating this way is they can separate the signal from the noise and start to see what foods might be triggering them and then start to add things back and say, oh, no, that was actually triggering me. And, and you know, that, that can be very powerful for people. So if people want the spices, I would just be aware which are seed-based and which are leaf-based. And uh, for people that are very sick, for people that are very sick, I think it's important to eliminate all of them and get a sense of how you feel without them. And, um, yeah, I mean, in my opinion, and again, I'm probably an alien in this regard, just meat with salt is pretty delicious and you don't need to add spices to it. But if people really want to do rosemary or they really want to do thyme or they really want to do oregano, you know, see how you react to it. But um, if you've ever tried oregano plain, it's pretty powerful stuff. And we know that it, I mean, we know that it has antimicrobial properties in the gut, which everyone says are good, but I would argue it could potentially be bad. You know, I mean, oregano is not something you want to consume a lot of. Like nobody, no no, I don't think any hunter-gatherer is ever really just going to town on oregano. That stuff is powerful. <laughs> you don't you don't want to eat a lot of that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's fair. I, I like the distinction between seeds and leaves. Um, closing on the last question for the, you know, our cur from the curiosity of my wife and I, um, eggs and dairy. So both animal products. Um, I see that you eat eggs. So I assume your position on eggs is they're in. Um, dairy, I, I see Sean Baker does a bit of dairy, I believe. Uh, again, I, I guess it's, it's preference, but do you have a position on dairy if it's sourced? So actually, let me add one other caveat. I know there's a huge difference, disparity between uh, agriculture, dairy agriculture in the US and dairy agriculture in the UK and parts of Europe. We have much stronger standards um, we're not allowed to mess with that produce nearly as much as you are in the US. So assuming you can source non-farmed or, uh, sorry, non-factory or minimally, minimally, minimally processed milks and cheeses, uh, perhaps you're even take, getting goat's cheese, which again is, is a much smaller industry. What's your position on eggs and dairy? Good question. I think that for a lot of people, and I know we keep coming back to this issue, 
it's very individual. There are definitely people that I see who are triggered by egg whites. And so I actually recommend to many clients that they avoid the egg whites because egg whites have avidin, which binds biotin and can cause net loss of um, uh, B vitamins. And I don't eat any egg whites. Okay. I, do egg, I do egg yolks because I think that mes- most people can tolerate those much better, but I don't do egg whites. Um, so if people are having autoimmune issues, I recommend avoiding the egg whites. It's sort of like the autoimmune carnivore diet, right? Dairy is, again, individual. I think there are a lot of people People who are triggered by dairy. There are compounds in dairy that affect satiety mechanisms. Casomorphine is a derivative of casein, which we know can affect satiety mechanisms. Um, casein and whey can be very immunogenic proteins. So I think that basically what I've created in my mind and not, you know, share with people is that there are tiers to a carnivore diet. There's tier one, tier two, tier three. And if uh, for my for my sickest patients, I don't recommend dairy. You know, I, I say you want to avoid dairy. It's not a good thing to have dairy in your diet. And, you know, you can potentially add it back uh, later. But um, in the short term, it's, it's best to avoid it. If you don't get triggered by it and you feel good with it and it's not an issue, then, then fine. You know, you can use it. That's, that's okay. But I, I do worry about satiety and weight gain and things like that with, with the dairy and some of these issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think there's a distinction between, you know, satisfaction, weight gain, um, and whether it's 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 a net negative to your body. And I know that people can get um, immune responses from dairy, or they can l- lack the lactase enzyme and be lactose intolerant. But if that if that is not relevant, and they're otherwise healthy, and they're, and they're not getting loads of immunogenic responses. I don't know. It feels like clean source dairy could be viable. But again, that's just me postulating. It could be, but if we think about it evolutionarily, it's pretty inconsistent. You know, there's no other animal that does it. And should we be using dairy throughout our whole life? And it's we know that dairy is going to increase IGF-1 and all this stuff. And so it's like, uh, I'm not convinced. You know, I think for some people, the case against dairy is pretty strong, you know, Um especially with IGF-1 and some of these other issues, which we don't see in the same way with, with meat-based diets, right? So if you look at a meat-based diet or an animal-based diet, the IGF-1 is, is, is quite moderate, quite low. It's really reasonable. But if you add milk and dairy, the, the IGF-1 can go quite high. Okay. Paul, yeah. thank you so much for dealing with a barrage of questions. You can see, obviously, they're fairly passionate and curious about this. And you've I done, love it. You've done a fantastic job of not not falling into your own dogma, right? Not not allowing to be, you know, completely resistant to the idea that carnivore is the only way. Um, I, I I'm more enthusiastic about increasing my meat consumption and reducing some of my supplements and reducing some of my veg intake, which I've been thinking I've been doing myself a world of good for the last year and a half as I've been optimizing my diet. You really made me think about this differently. So um you've helped n equals one massively i'll speak to my wife on it or impact her and of course the people listening i think we can take from this that there there isn't there is a transitional diet into um, being a carnivore there is an alternative uh, you call it facultative carnivore um, yeah. or there could be a post diet uh, carnivore 
uh, cleanse diet, you know, what happens afterwards. And I think we've kind of dealt with some of those um, safe or unsafe foods that could be introduced. So thank you so much for taking the time of dealing with my curiosity. Um, I want to close now on just letting you kind of let the guys know where they can keep listening and uh, hear about what else you're doing and maybe other services or things that you're, you've got in the pipe. Uh, lots of fun, exciting stuff happening for me. So I've, I've uh, been following in your footsteps. I've got my own podcast starting now. It's now live on iTunes and all the outlets. It's called Fundamental Health with Paul Saladino, MD. So people should check that out. Um, I have a website, which is probably the main place that people can go to find out about me. It's paulsaladinomd.com. On the website, people can sign up for my newsletter. Uh, they can email me. They can find my email. They can contact me for functional medicine consultation. And on the website, I have my links to all of my outlets. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. And I'm on Facebook, but most active on Instagram. So um, I'll just give people the handles if they want to know them directly. I'm paulsaladinomd on Instagram. And MD Saladino on Twitter. And I've got a YouTube channel, which is Paul Saladino MD. But check out my podcast, go to my website, poke around, sign up for my newsletter, which I think is going to deliver a great value, and reach out to me directly via email, which you'll find on my website if you'd like to become a client. Awesome, man. Awesome. Final, final thoughts. I've kind of put you through the ringer a little bit here in this discussion, Paul. Um, it's slightly atypical because I've come from a place of wanting to find the you know, how can I flex your position? What do you want to leave the audience with through the two hours of back and forth we've just had? Where do you want to leave them as a kind of closing comment? I think that I will just, you know, I think the quality of life equation underlies everything. And, you know, myself, like any physician, is just trying to help people understand how to how to live the highest quality life that they possibly can. And I think that I think that the carnivore diet is such a unique idea because it challenges so many of these notions that we've that we've been taught. And I think that it's going to help a lot of people. So if people are curious or they're suffering or they're not finding relief from their autoimmune or chronic inflammatory or psychiatric conditions, you know, I think that it's really something to consider that, hey, maybe we've got the paradigm wrong. And I hope that this information will be really helpful for people. And I'm super excited to see where it goes. I personally think it's going to change the landscape in the next five years, that, that in five years, that carnivore is going to be a really big deal. And it's going to be widely accepted as a very viable option. It's going to help a lot of people. That's my help, at least. Wow. Can't wait to see your journey, man. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your time today, Paul. And I hope we keep in touch. Just uh, don't forget us, people, as you soar into the into the stratosphere <laughs> over the next year or so <laughs> i would never i've also got a book coming out it's a little bit the book is about six months away but people people can be excited about that so i'll definitely you know i'll have to come back on and i'll tell you all about the book oh, the beautiful man beautiful listen i'll leave you be um enjoy the rest of your week paul thank you sir it's been a pleasure thank you man if you can't tell i bloody loved that conversation i thought it was fantastic and it could have gone on forever but i wanted to respect your time and paul's and uh, wrap a bow around it eventually so i hope you did enjoy this discussion i mean i enjoyed it so much so that i actually wrote what i think is a really good article that's trended incredibly well over the last week or so and it is adaptnation.io forward slash meat dominant diet go check out that it's also in the show notes um and let me know what you think it's a take on this discussion it's take on the carnivore diet it's trying to offer some greater flexibility if you can accommodate that i also will encourage you to take a look at the show notes so so many things were referenced 
in these two discussions. And it would be wrong of me to not give you the tools to be able to go and access them easily and quickly. So if you check the show notes, you'll see all the links that we spoke about various against all the different people we mentioned, um, all the different resources, even some of the studies. So go check that out. And that, guys, leaves me just to close, which is to say, you know that Adaptation is all about providing you with the tools and expert knowledge to help you improve and optimize your strength, health, and mindset inside and out. Until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation.